Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Molly Joanne McLaren was born on May 26, 1994, in the village of Cobham in Kent, England. At the age of 23, Molly, who was described as ambitious and popular, was a college student and worked part-time as a barmaid. She had an eating disorder and battled with bulimia and anxiety for many years. She was also committed to supporting and helping others with the same conditions. Instead of letting her disorder consume her, she started sharing her story, hoping to empower others around her. In July 2016, she met a 26-year-old man named Joshua Stimson on Tinder. Molly was determined to take things slowly, and so she and Stimson chatted for three months before she agreed to meet him in person. After they began dating, she told friends that she felt that she was constantly treading on eggshells while around him. As the relationship continued, Stimson became increasingly controlling to the point that he would find out where Molly was and show up unannounced. At this point, Stimson had gone from charming to suffocating. Molly broke it off four months into the relationship, but Stimson refused to accept it and bombarded her with messages, and so Molly took him back. Stimson was so possessive that he insisted on being at Molly's house even when she was busy with schoolwork and would sit there on her bed in silence until she was finished. On one occasion, he fired off an angry text telling her, it's unfair me wasting hours of my weekend sitting on your bed in silence, to which she replied, I didn't make you stay yesterday. One major alarm bell was when Stimson quit his job as a warehouse worker so he could spend more time with Molly. Molly's mom, Joanne, said her daughter was absolutely livid with his erratic decision. Stimson started gaslighting Molly by making her believe that all of her fears about him were just in her head. He even encouraged her to seek help from her general practitioner regarding her supposed mental health issues. But it was at a party to celebrate Molly's aunt's 60th birthday in Essex that Stimson's behavior turned even darker. At the party, Molly was dancing with her cousins, and Stimson wasn't happy about it. It was said that he kept staring at Molly, insisting that he wanted her to come sit back down and stop dancing. After the party was over, and Molly, Stimson, and her parents had all gone to bed, Molly's mother, Jo, received a chilling WhatsApp message from her daughter. Molly had asked her mother to come to the room she shared with Stimson because he was getting very angry. The couple had gotten into a disagreement, and Stimson had started recording everything Molly was saying, 
hoping to get something that would give him leverage against her. When Joe got to the room, Stimson tried to make her listen to the recordings of her daughter. But for Molly, it was the final straw. She told her mother that she didn't feel the same about Stimson and knew she had to end the relationship. Friends believe Molly and Stimson had originally bonded over their shared openness about their mental health issues. Molly suffered from anxiety and blogged about her experiences, while Stimson told her he was bipolar, but that wasn't true. When Molly tried to break off the relationship the first time, he used his fake condition to get her attention. Dr. Philip Joseph, a forensic psychiatrist, said that Stimson was using his fake bipolar disorder to pressure Molly into giving him her entire focus. Dr. Joseph would say that this was a significant warning sign and played on Molly's guilt. It made Molly feel like she needed to support him because she thought he was going through a very difficult period. One of her friends even said that any time Molly and Stimson had a disagreement, that he would bring up his fake bipolar disorder to guilt her into spending time with him. After being fed up with the relationship, Molly finally broke up with Stimson for good on June 12, 2007, seven months after they began dating. Stimson did actually suffer from a mental illness, but it was more OCD than bipolar disorder. After the relationship ended the second time, Stimson began posting derogatory comments and photos about Molly. These included lies about her using cocaine, and he tagged people so that all her family could see. He also posted online that there was more to come. Molly and her family asked Facebook twice to investigate his post, but the family was told that he had not broken any of the site's rules. Molly and her mother were so concerned that they circulated his photos to neighbors so they could keep an eye out and reported the post to the police on June 22nd. When Molly originally met Stimson, he told her he had never had a girlfriend before, but it would later be discovered that that was a lie. He actually had two ex-girlfriends, who he had stalked as well after they split. One of the ex-girlfriends, Alexandra Dale, said he would follow her and take pictures of her and also sent her a photo of her back garden and threatened to drown her on vacation. The other ex, Leah Hubbard, said he spit drink all over her in a nightclub after they split up, then waited outside for hours for her to leave. One of the girls believed he had slashed her tires after messaging her that something was waiting for her at home. She had gone to Staffordshire Police about the incident, who sent warnings to Stimson by text and voicemail. However, as there was no evidence to say he had been the culprit, it wasn't recorded as a crime. Molly went to the police because Stimson's behavior was getting worse. Molly had told friends that she was scared of him and went with her mother, Joanna, to North Kent Police Station. A police officer called Stimson and warned him to stop or face prosecution. But that didn't help, and he would be warned for a second time, but once again, that did nothing. Molly had blocked him from social media, but he manipulated an unnamed friend with whom he had previously matched on Tinder, but never met in person, to keep track of her and watch her post on Instagram. One night, Molly posted on Instagram about going to the Ship and Trades pub and was horrified to see Stimson there with a date. Eleven days after they split, Molly posted that she was going out for dinner with friends on Snapchat, thinking Stimson couldn't see it as she had blocked him. 
but while she was with her pals in the restaurant, he once again turned up. Molly put it down to simple coincidence, but felt so uncomfortable she went home early. The next morning, on June 29, 2017, Molly went to the gym to work out. All of a sudden, Stimson entered and began setting up his exercise mat next to her. Scared and worried, she sent her mother a text saying, He's turned up at the gym and come next to me. Her mother told her to come straight home. He then waited for her in the parking lot, clutching a gym bag containing a knife and a pickaxe. After getting into her car at the Chatham Dockside Outlet parking lot, he drove up next to her car, flung open her car door, and proceeded to attack her with a knife about 75 times. A bystander tried to help her, but Stimson was covered in so much blood that he couldn't be pulled from the car. Molly tried to fight him off, screaming and beeping her horn, but she died within minutes. Stimson was then arrested at the scene. In the days leading up to the killing, Stimson joined the nearby Nuffield Gym at Medway Valley Park, where Molly had applied for a receptionist job a week earlier. That same day, he bought a paring knife from an Asda store in Chatham and had purchased a Saxon pickaxe from the home base home and garden store. Stimson was jailed for life with a minimum of 26 years. He actually pleaded not guilty on the grounds of diminished responsibility, arguing that his mother leaving the family when he was a teenager had left him with a pathological fear of abandonment. The problem with that claim was that his actions were clearly planned. He went shopping for the weapons he used to kill her before the attack and pursued her constantly. His defense team argued he was suffering from an emotionally unstable personality disorder with a hypersensitivity to rejection, which resulted in a loss of self-control after the breakup. But a psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Philip Joseph, said Stimson was focused and in control as he carried out his premeditated plan. The judge told him that he was only concerned with himself and his own feelings, that he had a narcissistic personality trait, and was sure he was not suffering from a personality disorder. The judge told him that his actions were extremely selfish and callous. Molly took all the steps women are always told to take. She broke up with the controlling boyfriend clearly and publicly. She reported his abuse to Facebook, she reported him to the police, but little was done by any of these people to actually protect her from this psycho. After her death, Molly's friends and family set up the Molly McLaren Foundation donation page, which raised thousands of dollars for charity. The charity selects groups that support people with eating disorders and distributes money to them. It also raises awareness of eating disorders. Staffordshire police have since changed their policies and are required to report stalking as a crime, even if the victims don't wish to pursue the matter. Angela Best was born and raised in England and was described as generous, loyal, and the life and soul of her family. Angela would meet a man named Theodore Johnson that was on a day release from a mental hospital. Johnson was an auto repairman, described as extremely violent, controlling, and brutal. The couple would form a relationship that would last 15 years and was filled with violence and abuse. During this time, Angela was unaware that Johnson had murdered two women before they even met. 
Johnson had a violent history towards the women in his life, having been previously convicted of manslaughter twice. That is, until one day, she received letters about his past and confronted him about it. Johnson came to England from his birthplace of Jamaica in 1980 and worked at a car repair shop shortly before killing his first wife, Yvonne Johnson, in 1981. That same year, he was convicted of manslaughter for hitting Yvonne with a vase before pushing her off the ninth floor balcony of their home in Wolverhampton, England. He would then meet another woman by the name of Yvonne, and in 1993, he was convicted of strangling this Yvonne to death with a belt at their home in London before trying to hang himself. He was once again convicted of manslaughter. Prosecutors accepted that he was suffering from depression and a personality disorder, and Johnson was committed to the Old Bailey Psychiatric Hospital in London. In September 1994, Johnson was allowed out of his psychiatric unit for the first time on escorted community parole. Then, in mid-1995, he was given unescorted leave to spend two days a week taking a course on furniture restoration. That's where he met Angela, who had moved from Manchester to Tottenham in North London with her four children. In October 1997, Johnson was let out on the condition that he tell supervising doctors and social workers if he formed any new relationships. Not only did he fail to do this, but he had actually been seeing Angela for a year prior to his release. He kept his relationship a secret from authorities for 15 years until he struck again. In September 2016, 51-year-old Angela was tired of the abuse broke things off with Johnson, and began dating another man. A social worker and psychiatrist would last see Johnson on December 8, 2016, days before his next murder. On December 15, 2016, Angela went to Johnson's home in Dartmouth Park Hill, Tufnell Park, to help him with a passport application with the Jamaican Embassy. While there, he attacked her with a claw hammer and strangled her to death. After killing her, Johnson threw himself in front of a train at Cheshunt Railway Station in Hertfordshire, losing both arms. As he was being treated, he became wheelchair-bound. Meanwhile, police went to his apartment and found Angela's deceased body in the living room. He had initially pleaded guilty to manslaughter by diminished responsibility, but denied murdering Angela, a claim that he had made in his previous manslaughter cases. But at the last minute, he pleaded guilty to murder and was jailed for a minimum term of 26 years. Senior coroner Mary Hassel publicly stated that Angela's life might have been saved if mental health workers had not missed her relationship with a convicted serial killer because they were entirely reliant on him reporting it. She said mental health officers had considered Johnson a low risk at the time of his release from the hospital, as long as he stayed away from relationships, which clearly didn't happen. Angela's loved ones were devastated by her death. Angela was a mother of four, a grandmother, a sister, and a friend to many. At the age of 24, Alice Ruggles was living in an apartment in Gateshead, England, and was employed at the broadcast company Sky in Newcastle. She was a native of Leicestershire and graduated from Northumbria University with a product design degree. 
She met a man online, Lance Corporal Trimon Dillon, who went by Harry, and developed an intense online relationship with him while he was serving in Afghanistan. She had seen pictures of him on a mutual friend's Facebook page, and they met for the first time three months later. But she would soon realize that Dylan was not exactly the great guy he portrayed himself to be. Dylan became obsessive and manipulative, alienated her from her friends, damaged her self-confidence, and demanded constant attention. Friends described her transformation from being bubbly, friendly, and a ray of sunshine to being withdrawn and gradually isolated from them. Alice eventually split from Dylan in August 2016, after discovering he had contacted other women on social media and dating apps. When he discovered she might be starting a new relationship with an army officer she met in Germany, he began stalking her at her apartment, even knocking on her bedroom window and terrifying her. He made the five-hour, 240-mile round trip from Glencourse Barracks in Midlothian to Gateshead just to knock on her bedroom window and leave flowers and chocolates on her windowsill. But when Alice filed a police report, they basically ignored her. A frustrated Alice would tell her sister Emma that the police would finally respond when he stabs me. The stalking and harassment continued, as did the unwanted gifts, and he even contacted her friends and family and threatened to kill himself at one point. While authorities weren't taking much action, she did eventually obtain a police information notice instructing him to stop contacting her, and his commanding officer told him to leave her alone. However, he ignored all of this and sent her a parcel with a pleading note. However, when the police asked if she wanted him arrested, she declined. Things were getting worse with him going as far as to hack her Facebook account to monitor her movements. He also kept sending her pleading messages and crying selfies and asked her mother, Sue Hill, over social media to intervene. Then, on October 12, 2016, Dylan drove 120 miles from his army barracks in Edinburgh to Alice's home in Rolling Road, Bensham Gateshead. Dylan then climbed into her apartment through an open window and stabbed her to death in the bathroom. Just before her death, Alice had been trying on a ball gown and messaging her new potential boyfriend. All contact stopped at around 6 p.m. when it is thought she tried to lock herself in the bathroom to escape. Her flatmate would find her at 6.30 p.m. and immediately called emergency services. Dylan quickly became the primary suspect and was arrested at his barracks that night. Her blood was found on his Help for Heroes wristband and on the steering wheel of his BMW. He later claimed she had died after accidentally plunging the knife into her own neck. Even more shocking is the fact that Dylan had contacted a woman on Tinder, hoping for a casual hookup, all while he lied in wait for Alice to return home. It was also learned that a previous partner had suffered a similar stalking ordeal, which only stopped when she took out a restraining order. Dylan was sentenced to a minimum of 22 years behind bars for the murder of Alice. At his sentencing, Alice's mother urged other victims of stalking to speak out and not suffer in silence. She said she felt she had failed her daughter by teaching her to see good in everyone and for not standing up to Dylan when he contacted her on Facebook. 
Her family has set up the Alice Ruggles Trust to raise awareness and provide training and education about stalking and related issues to others in need. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.